this is Ben Smith, I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. folks, it's Ben here. You are listening to episode 97 of A Small Voice Conversation with Photographers. Thanks for joining me. Welcome along. Good to have you here. Uh, this week, my chat is with the inimitable Chris Dawley-Brown. But, as always, you know what's coming. A little bit of housekeeping and some messages from my lovely sponsors. If you enjoy the podcast, you think it's worth the price of a cup of coffee per episode, which, you know isn't much, then please do sign up for a small recurring monthly subscription or, if you prefer, make a larger occasional donation at bensmithphoto.com slash a small voice. Please do leave a positive review on iTunes and subscribe on iTunes so that others may find out about the podcast and so that um, I may get some kind of traction on there. I don't really know how it works, but uh, you're supposed to do those things. If you do happen to need a brand new website for the new year, you know, 2019 and all that, new website, new year, let me know. I will sort one out for you using the Squarespace platform at an exceptionally competitive rate. Uh, this episode of the podcast is brought to you, as usual, by the brilliant Charcoal Book Club, the world's first book of the month club dedicated exclusively to photo books. Each month, Charcoal works with the most respected photographers and publishers in the industry to send hand-picked books directly to your door. So whether you are a professional artist or a photographer with a very well-stocked library, or you're a novice who's just beginning to build their photo book collection, Charcoal Book Club is an easy and affordable way to stay up to date on the most essential work in contemporary photography. The club offers free shipping to the UK, Canada and the US, and members get exclusive perks such as signed copies, access to rare titles, members-only pricing in their online bookstore, and more. I just received today the latest book of the month, which is Liberty Theatre by Rosalind Fox-Solomon, published by Matt Books, that one. Looking forward to having a proper look at that once the podcast is sorted. So, for the latest and greatest photo books delivered to your door with free shipping and no hassles, check out the charcoalbookclub.com, where they are still on a mission to inform the mind and inspire the soul, which they do. This episode is also sponsored by finder.me that's f-i-n-d-r dot m-e finder is a two-sided marketplace for imaging professionals providing clients with direct access to thousands of experienced photographers on a single platform and in turn introducing photographers to hundreds of potential clients finder connects photographers with relevant customers based on location and type of photography services offered photographers can sign up quickly and easily and for free for corporate contracts at fixed rates or can set their own pricing to attract direct clients. In stark contrast to some of their much bigger competitors, the good people at Finder have integrity. They care about you as a photographer. They won't try to steal your copyright or exploit the fact that we're all living in precarious times. And they're dedicated to total transparency in the way that they do conduct their business. Finder is for everyone involved in the photography business, from wedding planners to artists. And as I mentioned, it's completely free to join. So if you are a photographer... If you want to open up a whole new way of finding new work, finding new clients and finding new opportunities, visit finder.me, F-I-N-D-R dot me, join up, create a profile and get yourself found. So my guest this week, Chris Dawley-Brown, he set up his own photographic practice in 1984, 
concentrating on documenting East London in a series of residences and commissions focusing on social housing, workplaces, hospitals and architecture, he's established a substantial archive of images that are repurposed and recontextualised for distribution via web, film, exhibition and publication. Project partners have included the BBC, the Museum of London, Homerton Hospital, the Wellcome Collection and various London Borough archives. Chris often works with re-energising existing archival material as part of creating new works. Recent publications include photo books The Longest Way Around, published by Overlaps, Drivers in the 1980s, The Corners, and The East End in Colour, The Photography of David Granick, all those last three published by Hoxton Mini Press. Chris lives and works in East London and is represented by the Robert Koch Gallery in San Francisco, USA. So this one happened because I was aware of Chris's work, of course, through the books with Hoxton Mini Press, but I don't think I was really properly au fait with it and I actually met Chris after he contacted me to sort out a new website for him which I did and obviously we got chatting and he very kindly gave me a copy of the corners and within about 10 minutes of listening to Chris recount a couple of great stories and talk about his work and talk about the East End I knew I had to invite him onto the podcast and here for your listening pleasure is my resultant chat with the fabulous Chris Dolly Brown. <music> You've presented me with this amazing plate full of pastries. And yeah, that, help yourself. Well, thanks, but mm. we also need to try and have a conversation. Yeah, yeah, fire away. I'm ready now. What are you, what are you currently working on, uh, if anything? If anything, yeah. Um, well, everything and nothing. You know, I don't know what I'm working on until it's, until it's over. Um, I never have, really. Mm. Though I guess there comes a point where you have to, uh, you know announce a certain set of photographs or present them in a book form or something then mm. you you uh, you realize what it is you've been doing for the last couple of years or mm. five years or in in some cases with me 30 years because often the archival stuff comes into the picture mm. sorry about that noise that, that, that's the rain everyone if you're wondering yeah. what that noise is is absolutely <laughs> Yeah. It's giving it some some great like London that. weather. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you so you kind of see it almost all as a continuum, as it were, without thinking too much about distinct projects. Although, as you say, you do ultimately present them as as groups of pictures. Yeah, it's turned out that way just just because of the way I I go about things. I guess I'm, you know I never set out to kind of do a thirty or forty year project. It's just that uh, sometimes. Uh, unfinished business from the 80s suddenly hoves into view and you think it's about time I kind of um, decided what that was mm. or uh, put it alongside some pictures that I've just shot recently and they they seem to fit, they tell a story about what what's going on and in, in the case of East London really it is a kind of like a long form peaks and troughs, you know it's been through these really incredible periods of uh, boom and bust, you mm. know going back hundreds if not thousands of years and you can't really work photograph around here without it constantly sort of you know you're being reminded of the of the history it's like this kind of theatrical backdrop to everything that's going on because of the politics because of the architecture because of the the people you're talking to um you're just constantly reminded that this is a sort of like a a, a territory which is in sort of high flux you know it's always kind of it's always deciding where it's going next mm. 
and I guess we're in a kind of a, one of those kind of low points at the moment where everyone's a bit uncertain of the future and people feel you know well you know like should I get out of here is this a friendly place you know is this uh, mm. so you you're know. you're as much you're as much preoccupied with history in a way as you are with the present and therefore you sort of you, you don't have any qualms about sort of reusing stuff from from the past I wouldn't say I was preoccupied with it it's just impossible to escape you know I grew up in an atmosphere of sort of you know unreconstructed sort of modernist sort of like forward thinking you know the 60s where you know like we were just saying off air you know there was only six years between Love Me Do and the Wyatt album you know (laughs) that was kind of normal that was the default position when I was a kid I was kind of thinking right okay so that's the gig you you go forward you make something that no, no one's ever heard before or anyone's seen before it's a kind of you know it's like a march of progress to, mm. towards this kind of you know utopian nirvana whatever it was yeah. and it wasn't until i i guess i was in my early teens that it was obvious you know that that particular sort of period had ground to a halt and it was starting to get a bit ugly and a bit horrible mm. But you know, so that was the seventies, basically. Yeah, which and you know, I I look back on the seventies with you know, I, I think it was a great time, but it seems to be in sort of monochrome, and it seems to be sort of a period of you know conflict and fighting and you know dirt. <laughs> <laughs> but it's yeah. when I, ca- I came to you know I didn't grow up in London, so that's when I came here, and it was uh, yeah, it was kind of like you know everything was coated in soot. It was like some weird gothic landscape. Mm. I thought I've got. A got to get to work on this place this is great you know so that's when your interest in east london sort of began really as a subject because you've already mentioned east london that's essentially your patch yeah um it's when you moved here in the 70s yeah and i had no idea that i had any family history relating to the place but you know i i I moved around north london a bit and then um came to live with some friends in east london so I, i think one day i just rang up my dad and told him about you know what my new address was I said, I'm living in Hackney. He says, what do you want to live in that fucking shithole for, you know? <laughs> and then he told me that that's where he grew up and spent his whole life trying to get away from. Right. But right. I had no idea. Um, yeah. So I said, no, it's it's great, Dad, you know. It's a brilliant place. Yeah. And he was like, oh, yeah, like hell it is. Yeah, because he, he remembered it as it as I think it he was. just remembers it like after the, the Luftwaffe had yeah. dealt with it, you know. Right, right, which would have applied to just about everywhere. Yeah. But, but there were, I, mean, I suppose we should sort of put it, put it in context for, for the listeners, well, for my imaginary listener in, in Kansas City, although I have an actual real listener in Kansas City, which I'm very delighted to know about because I always refer to my, my archetypal listener in Kansas City and mm. I can't remember the guy's name, but if you're listening, thank you for listening. But Hackney is a place... Um, you know, we sort of was a staunchly kind of working class, class pretty run down borough, and is now very gentrified and very kind of diverse. It has always been quite diverse. But well, that's another myth, you know. It, Do you it, think Hackney was constructed as a sort of as, as a middle class safe haven with you know with uh, with fresh air, you know, sort mm. of on the hill a bit out of the you know out of the hellhole of Whitechapel and Bethnal Green. You know, Hackney was well well to do until until the the war flattened it basically right yeah i'm talking post-war really i mean i'm talking yeah yeah, i'm not talking that far back i'm talking sort of 70s 80s you know really into the you know 90s when things started to change rapidly so that's the 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 shithole that your dad remembers yeah is is the sort of post-war no he he'd he'd never seen it after 
he was a kid, you know. He, yeah. He'd uh, he he got out of it, but then he got involved in the real war himself. So he, all he all he wanted to do was just, you know, have a break and live in the countryside because he'd seen enough hell of his own. You mm. know, I mean that's another story which sort of, you know, stuff I didn't know about until fairly recently, I guess. Well, yeah, I'd like to talk to, talk about that because you did a a book on that subject called the the longest uh, way round. Yeah, and we we will, I think we'll get into it a bit later. Um, but but on the kind of current subject, how do you describe what you do to people in terms of your photography? An archive uh, as making recordings for people who haven't been born yet. Okay, so you see yourself as an archivist <clears throat> in a way, or someone who's creating an archive for the people of the future in a way. Well, you know, I'm I'm a photographer, but I don't think of myself as an artist. So you know, it's kind of. I, I take the word photography, you know, to myself quite seriously as a distinct, you know, it's not like I could drop it and pick up a pencil and express myself in another way or a guitar or something. I, there's only one thing I know how to do. Mm. And I quite like the idea that it, it isn't an art form, that it's kind of, it's more a sort of branch of sociology or psychology or anthropology or whatever. You know? Right. Um, so you though, don't have any pretensions towards being an artist or you don't call yourself one well it's just that you know you you know i've grown up in a in a sort of artist milieu surrounded by painters sculptors musicians writers you know because that's just you know where you that's just where we're at you know um if you're doing what i'm doing that's those are the people who you're going to be meeting they sort of become your friends and that's the world you live in Hmm. um but what i do is kind of it's a bit of a sort of you know, antisocial sort of. You know, you you have to go away. You have to be on your own. You know, you can't be with anyone. Um, and I think there's something in my character which forces me into that. You know, avoiding social situations or um, giving myself an excuse to just be in solitary confinement. Mm, yeah. But trouble is, you're never off duty. You know, you're like a policeman. You know, you never you can never really stop sort of thinking about what's going to happen tomorrow, where you're going to go. Or what the potential is in a in a certain place in a certain light, mm. you know. Because half the time you're travelling around on a bus, you think and you see something, you think I've got to go back there, but like tomorrow morning I've got to. And then you go back without a camera, and you just stand there looking at it, and you think, okay, so there's people walking this way, that's the kind of route to that place, and you kind of start looking at the buildings around you. Then you might sort of Google the history of that street or whatever, and you discover something happened there. And the reason you're interested in it is it because it's a collision of all these things producing a certain sort of feeling and an atmosphere. Mm. Um, and I have to make a picture of it. So that's your process, is that in, in a way you sort of wrecky a place and you, you do quite a lot of preparation before you even turn up with a camera. Yeah, I mean, I only shoot one picture a day, you know. I, I won't go around sort of making a million snaps. I'll decide what I'm going to do, make that picture. I, and because it takes me about an hour to make each picture. Mm and about a week to put it together mm. and you know it's a very sort of it's very similar to the process i was using when i was working on a plate camera with when i was using film mm. you know like lugging a half ton camera around with all that gear and dark slides and stuff yeah you know you you had to be very you had to prepare yourself you know what, yeah it wasn't like you were taking you have to snaps. be considered you can't just throw it all in a bag and you know shoot one picture and then go and you know if that doesn't work out it's yeah like, this is where i'm going today and this is what i'm going to shoot 
but you still have to sort of leave yourself open to what what's you know to the unexpected yeah you know well what we should probably explain straight away is that the reason that you're you're saying it takes the amount of time that it takes is that the way you've been working of late is is to use composites basically to shoot a number of frames and then in in photoshop afterwards you kind of put them together where did that first come from where did the idea first arise for doing that I mean, not as a as a as a, as an idea, because we all know that that's been done forever. But yeah. it's something that you decided that you wanted to do for yourself. Well, I I was intrigued whether I was going to be able to continue doing what I was doing if I moved from film to digital, because it was a, such a completely different process. You know, just not not technically, but philosophically as well. Because I thought, well. I, I I can I can make as many images as I, as I want, and I'm I'm not having to, you know, pay pay good money for the film or the processing. It sort of opens up this, you know, huge vista of possibilities in in how you actually take photographs. Um, and I thought, can I re- can I remain a documentary photographer, which is what I am, and and use digital in the way that I think it's got the potential to be used, i.e., sort of like a sampling tool rather than just, you know, you decide you put your four edges around the frame and you press the button and that's your image and you've made all the executive kind of decisions in that one sixtieth of a second. And I was thinking, well, why, why do you have to do that, you know? Why, why, why can't it take a week for you to make all those decisions? Because they're important, you know? Mm. And then you kind of, you know, you come up against the pure, you know, like the... the the, the purest the school, purest, which I yeah. which I do on a daily basis, and you know some of it, which is quite hostile, you know. Yeah, they get they get very they get very stressed out about the whole thing. They don't. It's something about it that they find uh, they find unacceptable that you're constructing an image after the fact. It's sort of it's anathema to them somehow. Well, I can understand. You know, if 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 photography is about a truth, you know, with a capital T, if that's what you're after, if that's what we're doing by being a documentary photographer, then yeah, you know, sure, you can't fuck around with it. You got to, you can't you can't get a sort of stock picture of a of a Rottweiler and put it you know put it in your picture because it sort of makes it. You know, you can't. I'm not interested in all that stuff. I mean, it, I suppose if anything, I'm interested in getting closer to some kind of truth photographically speaking than I would normally all I'm doing is stretching out the time frame of the actual kind of executive part of the image itself so instead of a 60 of a second it might be you know an hour mm. so uh but, but you know you you, in, you start interfering in the sort of narrative which, they, it, yeah, which is people think you're cheating in some way that that's that's sort of essentially what's that's all right i don't you know i'm just saying that's their mind. no yeah. cool 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 yeah absolutely i mean very ill-advisedly i got into reading some of the comments on a guardian piece about your your stuff that you did a book called the corners with hoxton mini press which is yeah um, features the, the kind of work that we're now talking about these amazing kind of tableau of of, of well-known corners in in the in the manner that w- you deal with hackney and um this composite technique and yeah people get <laughs> people get very upset about it yeah uh, because that they just see it as some kind of transgression yeah yeah you they think you're taking the piss out of them or something um I mean, I can kind of, I can kind, of, I can understand it in theory. It just, it's just, I just think it's fucking stupid. 
Yeah. Well, because you know, there's the, you know, Cartier Bresson is there. Is there sort of like his his dictum about how you should go about being a a street photographer or a documentary photographer somehow magically has though you know those those dogmatic principles have managed to survive. Mm. But I think they're the only ones that have ever been really made about photography. People like to be restricted or something. So they 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 say, okay, yeah, let's go for that, you know. Let's mm. go for let's go for his rules. Yeah, and then they become very invested in that. Yeah. And then anyone who tries to step outside of it is somehow, I don't know, kind of threatening to their worldview. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot, you know, certain organisations which, uh, you know, represent photographers as agencies. You know, they sort of, uh, they reinforce those ideas, I guess. Mm. Maybe because he, you know, he was their founder. Yeah. Um, Actually, he's not her. I I met him once and he he attacked me. (laughs) Not (laughs) Not physically. Yeah, physically. Really? Yeah. Uh, it was a. Um, this is a, this is a, an exclusive. I had no idea who he, you know, who this guy was. He was just had a glass of bubbly in his hands and was talking to someone at a, at a launch of a book, and I was there just doing, doing a job, you know, taking pictures of people grinning with glasses of bubbly in their hands. So there was this bloke and two other people. So I went up to him, and I couldn't ask everyone if I could take their picture. I was, it was obvious what I was doing. I was just mm. documenting the event. And this guy suddenly lunged at me and, and pushed my camera so hard it broke the flash gun off the hot shoe. Can't and I said, what the fuck are you doing? Like, and then he was kind of hustled away and this woman came up because it, that was Cartier Bros and he hates having his picture taken. I but, said, I hate having my fucking camera wrecked. But I mean, the fucking... But it, it, it the, was just the way he did it. But the I just crushing thought he's irony like, of that is... a nice person. It's almost like yeah, that's an anecdote that, that is kind of... Beyond parody. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if, if I didn't trust you, Chris, I'd think you were making yeah. it up. Because yeah. Cartier-Bresson, a man, you know, the most famous kind of, you know, street photographer of them all, well, got stressed was, uh, out about having his fucking picture taken. This was, uh, when was this? It was 1989. So he was... He was old. He was very old. Right. That's, um, I, had, I didn't even yeah. know he was still alive, to be honest. And it was, he, it was a Thames and Hudson launch in Paris... And I'd been uh, tasked to go over there and document the event because mm. it was a big deal for them. And he, he just happened to be there. It was nothing right. to do with him. Right, right. That's extraordinary. I, I yeah. suppose, you know, people get grouchy when they get that age, maybe. I mean, that's, that's about as much slack as I can yeah, cut it d- him. Yeah, it didn't... There was no sort of, like, irony at the time. I just, I just thought this old bastard's wrecked my <laughs> camera. So I had, to, yeah, I had to find a roll of gaffer tape and sort of, like, you know, spend the rest of the evening like stressed out because my flesh wasn't worth it was only later on the whole it suddenly that, yeah. yeah it sort of clicked oh but, my gosh uh, anyway I just thought oh fuck him you know yeah. I don't care him and his rules well yeah exactly you've, 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 yeah. <laughs> you've sort of um, spent your career you know kind of getting in, getting your own back in a way since then in, yeah in well, it don't feel like a career it just feels like wow. a sort of survival really yeah, yeah. well I mean, you, you yeah. say you don't feel like a professional is that really true still yeah, I don't feel like a professional. I feel like a, I feel like a sort of, uh, yeah, a, a, a halfway decent amateur sort of thing. It's mm. like a hobby. It feels like a hobby, like a, mm. you know. Yeah. Because people are going to say, wait, are you going to go out and get a proper job, you know, because the gas bill needs playing, you know. <laughs> I go, oh, yeah, I will. But just give me, you know, later on, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> that seems like as good a way of getting away with it as possible. Yeah. Uh, I'm not, I don't think I'm getting away with it anymore. The game's over, you know. Yeah. Well, you've done pretty well. 
Um, but I, th- I think you know, th- I think those 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 ideas about you know what does professional mean and what the hell are we all doing is, have changed so dramatically. I mean, I remember when I was at college with my good friend Vanessa Winship, who people will know because yeah. she's a fucking rock star photographer now. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. But you know, me and Ness used to say, I don't want to. Do I, I want to? I want to be a pro. I don't want to do this as a as a fucking you know. I don't want to be an amateur. That was a kind of yeah. that was a kind of sen- that was a fail. You know, it was a, a kind of mark of failure. But I think those ideas have changed quite dramatically. Like, you know, if you can find a way to be an amateur but pay the bills as well, in a way, that's sort of almost like the better option now. You know, because you can you can spend your time doing the stuff you want to do rather than doing stuff that you don't want to do for other people. Well, I, I I only really like taking photographs if it's ones that I want to do. If someone asks me if I get a job, you know, um, they're usually they're usually not that good. This isn't a great advert for me, you know, but they're not <laughs> they're not. I you know I do a sort of adequate job, but they never really sort of turn me on. Mm. Um, so you know, I I restrict myself in, in photography as a money making thing to a very sort of. Um, you know, niche sort of architectural sort of pictures of building sites and buildings going up mm. where my, you know, doesn't get credited. You know, they end up on websites and brochures for various building companies and architects. And I can I can knock out a decent architectural picture, you know, in the style of Ezra Stoller or Julius Shulman or one of them, one of the greats mm. um, who, I you know, I loved their work, you know. But I always saw it as a sort of documentary. I used to sort of reappropriate what they what they were doing in my head and sort mm. of turn them into documentary pictures. Is that how it started for you with doing kind of ar- architectural stuff? I mean, this kind of interest you have in documenting the, the kind of environment that you find yourself in. Um, you you started your... Well, okay. Yeah. I'm going to use that C <laughs> word again, Chris. You started your career doing that sort of thing, did yeah, you? Yeah, but no one was commissioning the sort of things I wanted to do, except maybe... Um, Institutions like the Museum of London, for instance, when Mike Seaborn was still there and was uh, not only a, an avid photographer himself, but also was involved in sort of commissioning and purchasing collections of work. But that, you know, that you were lucky if you got in on that. That was a kind of, you know, once every 10 year type of thing. So I sort of decided to sort of appoint my, like I imagined a job which was, you know, that I'd been appointed by some sort of noble um, public sort of institution to, to, to go around East London and, you, you know, just document what was going on, make photographs, because in 50 or 60 years, people are going to be really interested in looking at them. Mm. And it was a very open brief. So that I sort of imagined that I had an important photographic mission, except I didn't. It was just all, it was all in my head. But... In order to sort of like please myself with the pictures, I was being judged on a constant basis by a sort of like a like a board, like a board of concretization who would say, no, you know, this one's no good or that one's all right. It doesn't, you know. So that was kind of that's what made me get out there and do it. Mm. I, I had to imagine that I had an important job. Uh, and I, I still I think I'm still a bit like it stayed with me that idea, you know. Like sometimes I get a bit stroppy if I'm photographing on the street and someone comes up and, you know, goes, oh, excuse me, what are you doing? You know, because I've pointed a camera at them. 
and I some you know I'm just like what the fuck do you think I'm doing? I've got a camera in my hand on a tripod. Mm. What does it look like? Mm. And they go, oh, I was only asking. <laughs> and I was and going, yeah. I said, yeah, but if you know, if there was a guy, um, you know, in a manhole like by a telephone cabinet, you wouldn't ask him what he was doing because it would be bleeding obvious. Mm. And so now I sort of like I I dress myself up like a telecom, like not 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 a guy who like digs up the road, but one of those ones who sort of like supervises, you know, yeah. like high vis vest, but yeah. it's a bit neat and tidy. Well, those guys who look through that gadget, which. Not like George Osborne in a in a in a in a yellow gilet. No, <laughs> but a, that's a horrible thought. Just just a step up yeah. from from the kind of the, the real dirty so ones who are like covered in shit. You know they've been on a building site or working on a tower block or something. Yeah, there's usually a guy who's a bit neater who's got a clipboard. Right, right, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. going for that. that's your look. That's the look you're going for. Well, because I can't. I'm, I'm not going to get away with dusty man. No, no. Um, no. But you know, I, I have considered getting a. <laughs> Getting a you know a, a, a Mayo Jeune, whatever they called, printed up with content provider or something written on the back, or you know, or oh, that would like, be great, like a high vis vest with content provider. Yeah, because it would it. just be the truth. Yeah, you know, it's like that that's is perfect. That that's, is that's totally the yeah. truth. So if anyone asked me, I could just say, well, you know, I could just turn around and point to my back. So can I get on with my job? That now? would be Thanks, awesome. Mate. You know, but sometimes I'm more charitable. You know, I get into involved in a discussion and just tell me like. Explain the process, if you would, just kind of fairly, fairly kind of briefly in bullet points in terms of this, uh, you know, doing doing a corner, for instance, um, you know, both the shooting and the okay. what you then do afterwards. Not not the kind of not in in great detail as far as the photoshopping goes, but just generally speaking, so people get a sense of it. I probably will have been there a couple of times at certain times a day to just sort of look at what's going on, see what the kind of. I'm interested in the sort of flow of people, how they're moving through space, and how they're sort of negotiating with each other if you like or the choreography and movement there's particular sort of buildings in the backdrop whether they sort of they're, they're, they're saying something about you know decaying modernism or preservation of heritage or you know Victorian interest or anything like that they're very, they're very carefully sort of chosen mm-hmm. um, to, to look a certain way in a certain light um, and then I'll probably go back the next morning usually early morning because uh, I feel a bit woozy, you know, in the early mornings. I'm not really woken up, and I, that's when I do my best work and when I'm in a bit of a uh, a semi-conscious kind of condition, I guess. Hmm. Not thinking too much, put it that way. Like, you know, not sort of being, oh, this is an intellectual process or you've got to include this or that. It's a bit more sort of spiritual. Um, and then I'll, I won't have a tripod, but I'll, I'm, not, just, I'm just using a regular Nikon. DSLR and I'll shoot a background you know in maybe 18 or 21 hits bang 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 and make a make a completely sort of uh, clear sort of background with nothing going on in it without a tripod yeah 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 they're all done handheld yeah and then I'll uh, and then I'll start populating it and then I I zoom in a bit because I'm shooting on a telephoto with the corners because they're all they're you know they're minute each each frame is quite a small area hmm. so they look like wide angle but they're, sh- they're shot on a usually on like a eighty five or something like that right um, old le- I like n- old Nikon lenses you know the old A ones that don't autofocus hmm. like really heavy old things but they're, they're really sort of pure glass I like those. Um, 
You right. did, did you want to know all this technical shit? No, is that what you meant? Yeah, no, no, no. This is great because I, I, I thought this couldn't be possible without shooting on a tripod. And I, I, no, we don't normally get into this kind of stuff. Yeah, they but look I think like it's interesting. They look like they're kind of shot. The but whole idea was to make them sh- like. Uh, look like they were shot on a I, plate. Camera, yeah, and know. I don't. I don't actually. My my Photoshop knowledge is. is I don't is, actually is use Photoshop that much. Rudimentary to, to say the yeah. least. But do you literally cut the people out in Photoshop, no. or you just mat things on top of each other? Kind of. Yeah. Thing? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah I'd, I'd, I'd get bored cutting people yeah. out. Yeah. Oh God. So, I mean, yeah. Do we, what, back to this kind of notion of. Uh, you know how people react to it. Wasn't there? Didn't you have a meeting with a bloke at the VNA or something? What was that one? Tell <laughs> yeah, me about that guy. I better not. I better not name the man. No, but you got to tell us. Well, it's a well-known independent photography mag, um, and I th- this was. I suppose I was about two or three years into the project, and I, I you know, I was, I'd, I'd had a few things written because I was posting on social media, and then one or two people were picking them up and writing things, and he saw one of them, and he said, "Oh, well, you know, I really like these. Could you come in and show me?" what you're doing and he said but don't bring a screen I want to see prints so I spent like a week making these lovely prints and I hadn't really printed any of them and he yeah it was in this room this long room with a big oak table and it was all very grand and I sort of laid them all out and he was really digging them you know he was going oh yeah this one's in we're gonna put this one in and it was you know it was a good conversation I thought oh he's really liking these you know um so we like we just get into the kind of you know shaking on the deal, and he was saying, okay, we'll we'll run three double page spreads, and this is fantastic. And then I was just kind of just near the end. He said, oh, by the way, he said, uh, what camera do you use um, for for taking these? I said, oh, you know, just a, like a Nikon D one hundred or two hundred or whatever it was in those days. And he said, what? I said, yeah, they're like you know they're composites. Um, they're, you know, they're made up of about 25, 30 pictures each one, you know, to get the quality, you know what I mean? I was like, I want, uh, you know, I don't want any old shit. And he, he didn't say anything. He just scooped up all the prints, put them back in the box and kind of jerked his thumb at the door, like, get the fuck out of here. And I said, what, what's up, man? You know, like, what's the problem? And he said, it's doing my head in. I can't deal with it. And he just... (laughs) So I just, I went out and the door closed behind me and I did a, like a fist pump. <laughs> I thought, so yeah, he, he, I'm he, on the right track. This is good. Yeah. yeah. But he had some fantasy that, that, that they were all yeah. shot with a fucking 10-8 plate camera or something. Yeah, and he... Uh, he, like, he and he, they were all actually, you he know... He spends his life looking at photographs. I would have thought he would have known what was going on. But you know? it was an affront to him somehow that... that well, <laughs> you know, if I'd shown them to him in 1956 or something, I could have, you know, yeah. give, cut him some slack. Maybe he was a bit confused, but it wasn't. It was 2011, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's like... Mm. So that's the sort of anyway, thing you're so up against. Needless yeah. to say, that spread didn't happen, <laughs> and I think I was blacklisted by another kind of like board of people. Mm. Um, but because you know, yeah. Well, I, I mean, so I suppose it almost maybe it was almost an embarrassment that he hadn't that he that he felt stupid that you know he hadn't realised. Or I think what it was is the kind of you know that obviously if you're a photojournalist and you're you know you're you're in a you're in a conflict zone and your life is at risk and you're making shit up. You, you're going to get fired, mm. and rightly so, you know? It's like those, you know, the Time Life photo of the year they found out they sort of, like, photographed a fag out of someone's hand or something, and they got they didn't get the prize because it's just a minute bit of photoshopping. It's, it's, you can't do that. It's, uh, it's wrong, you know? Yeah. But I'm, I'm not. I'm not doing that. I'm making pictures just to please myself, you know, for a bit of fun. Yeah. 
Um, so you kind of get lumped in with, um, you know, the serious photography. You know, like many of the, you know, people you have on your podcast, I'm, not, I'm in awe of people who put their lives on the line and, mm. you know, come back with these amazing pictures. I mean, it's yeah. not, this but is you, a different you, thing. As you say, you're not, you don't have a journalistic uh, bent. You're not, you're not interested in that. It's not what you're... No, I do, I'm just, I'm not that clever. You know, I'm not that good. I couldn't do it, you know. I, I ain't got the balls. Mm. Yeah. But mind you, I do get into some sticky situations in Romford now and again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, but they're manageable. Well, you you've know. you've sort of expanded a little in, in you know, geographically speaking. Are you, are you sort of venturing out now further afield? <laughs> well, Hackney's had it. I mean, we both lived there, right? I yeah, mean, I lived it's, there. It's, when I say that, I mean, obviously, you know, it's a lovely place, but as a place to... Um, to photograph the kind of the the edges that I was interested in the sort of the it might be the sort of areas of conflict if you like and it's not to say the whole place has been repopulated with you know rich white middle class people but it's starting to go that way and it's started it's stopping to it's ceasing to interest me because mm. there's a certain kind of uh, there's a certain conflict zone I'm sort of interested in where 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 things happen, and usually now you have to just go a, a bit further out. You know mm. that that is now you you know you might you might find a very similar situation in Newham or Ilford or um, further out. Mm. Um, you said you quite like the idea of being an intruder or feeling like an intruder. Yeah, I, I, I like the I like the feeling that I'm I'm uh, I'm in an area of difficulty rather than one of like comfort. You know, it's like. Uh, and you know, every, everyone's taking pictures in, in Hackney of, you know, pictures of cakes and things, and mm. it's it's fine. But I just I, I've done all that, you know. Yeah. Can't do. I I want uh, I want something else in the in the work that's uh, telling me a different story about the the, the post war history, the progress of, mm. of of just where the sort of where the social situation is. Uh, I can't really expand on that with any degree of intelligence because I. I'm just I don't know how to express it really I just leave it to the pictures to do yeah you're going to stick with this composites thing for the time being as it were I mean you know is there is there any way you can you can take it next as it were that that technique well I just see it as a sort of progression of of uh, of being a better photographer of being um, more resourceful and not um, flushing chemicals down the loose. I don't. I'm not interested in working with film anymore. I'm not. I'm not a fetishist in that sense. It has to be shot on film. I think you can make digital pictures look like film if you if you're good enough mm. or or give the impression. You know, um, there's nothing about the process of processing colour materials that excite me like it used to with black and white you mm. know the old red light and all that stuff I mean I just haven't been in that world for so long I forgot what it was like um, but I really enjoy the process of you using a variety of images to achieve one image Yeah, that sort of alchemy returns the sort of magic of photography is kind of but for me, that's right. that's just as exciting as being in a dark room with a red light. It's, right, is to be in front of a computer putting a picture together. Yeah, it's almost it's a replacement for that. Yeah, and whether I'll stick with that, or, or I think maybe they'll just there'll be machines that do it for you. You know, you could you could probably uh, stick a camera on a lamppost and tell it to, you know, program it to do various things over a certain period of time. And you'll end up with a picture just. Like, yeah. I mean, the pictures that I I like the most are 
street view and pictures of that you see in windows of estate agents. Mm. You know, the, <laughs> that's where I think cutting edge photography is at. You know, yeah, because they're you know for estate agent pictures used to be really bad. You know, but now they 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 they're using the tools to make these buildings look good before they're built. You know. Yeah, well, that's that's a you know, I mean, that resonates with me because that's part of uh, very much the kind of key part of the thing that I'm been working on for a yeah. while, which also East London as it happens, as you know. But um, yeah, that's very much a, a sort of recurring motif in my thing, which I don't want to talk about. No, no it's all right. <laughs> when I I know it, it sounded flippant, but it's really uh, that's that no, you know I I think you know when um, when when Street View is is accessible historically i.e you know wouldn't it be supposing in 20 years you're you're looking at the sort of uh, the archive of street view or google earth and you say oh, i want to take a walk down my street in 2015 or whatever you know mm. 20 years ago you'll be able to do it right and you'll be able to see your mates you know buying veg right yeah yeah it, w- it literally will be time travel amazing you know, like yeah. a virtual if if those things remain available to us, you know, like you yeah. say, if they keep an archive of those images. Well, I think, that, that, yeah, it's, it's inevitable that they will, I guess. I guess. You, you just need a huge, huge amount of storage. Yeah, well, which I'm is being one thing they have. Uh, uh, d- did you come, have you come across Peter Funk? Yeah. Uh, was he an influence? Is that influence? how you say it? I always say Funch. Or Funch. Funk. Yeah. Let's say Funk. Let's yeah. split the difference. He's, uh, yeah, I think no, he's I like Danish. What, is yeah. that, was he an influence? Because he did a bit of that sort of stuff. He did, he? yeah. But I wasn't aware of it until I was doing it myself. Oh, really? So um, I was thinking, maybe he saw me. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I, I found, I mean, in the, yeah. in the course of preparing, I found a guy who'd sort of, you know, willfully decided to give it a go kind of thing you know being inspired by you and by peter funk and oh, and right. uh and went out and 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 they had one image of um like a street scene you know with a bus stop and 10 different in- individuals uh all on the phone yeah all 10 of them like, yeah. or using their phone yeah and i was and it was really good it yeah. was like i was like that is that's a pretty good tribute to to chris and, <laughs> and peter there oh, and um and i was thinking actually you know you could you could more or less get that for real now, you know, the way that we all use our phones constantly. I mean, not yeah. not ten people, but you could get four or five like that. But it, it was a it was a good good effort, I thought. Um, so yeah, so you're gonna you're gonna stick with that. Well, there's no reason not to at the moment because no. it's just it's just a very efficient way of of making the kind of documents I'm interested in making. You know, without me lugging a plate camera around or a super expensive digital camera can be quite you know because i'm often on a bicycle so i want to be sort of mobile and Mm. open to suggestion as it were yeah but you know i i I like the quality of big scale color pictures you know i mean i didn't i didn't see stephen shaw's work until i was like way down the road you know uh, if if i'd seen his work earlier it might have had a bigger influence but right when i started out the only interesting people using color as i knew were sort of paul graham and uh, you know that was the the past caring series that he did was mm. was very influential on what I was doing because up until then I was you know I was looking at Bill Brandt and Diane Arbus and thinking that was where it was at you know uh, that was they, they were my sort of gods um, so that's a pretty radical shift yeah there was something about um, seeing how colour negative film sort of created almost a, a different sort of language in photography that was uh, 
you you felt was familiar through black and white sort of reportage and because you know we were all surrounded by color pictures through advertising and you know travel brochures and your own snaps that you took you know like on on holiday but there you know there was something about using that material but shifting its context using it as a tool of documentary that i found you know deeply profound mm. i don't know why that was and i think it was yeah when paul's book came out of the dole offices yeah i suddenly thought oh this is uh, this is interesting i didn't know you could do this in color mm. and it's still to have a resonance yeah, yeah. Well, nor, nor did a lot of people at that point, but I suppose yeah. he was an influence in that sense. I mean, I'd love to t- get him on at some point, but I'll put a link because people need to sort of see that work. Yeah, I mean, if if you're, you know, you're young folks who might look at that work now and think it, it was, you know, like a lot of other things, but it wasn't. It was completely new. Mm. You know, you talk about how you're after a particular atmosphere, but are you able to sort of explain what that is? Or is it difficult to articulate that? Well, I mean, I you know, I'm influenced by other photographers. I guess maybe what you know, I'm more influenced by um, by you know writing and music. Maybe mm. I mean, when I discovered J.G. Ballard as a kid, that was a big moment. Really? And, and what, the, what was it about Ballard that got you? I th- I think it was a different way of seeing the seeing the the urban the suburban sort of landscape seeing the alienation that was kind of that was going on or was possible in that sort of in that world which i i hadn't really been exposed to um because i i grew up out of london so i i my my concept of london was still sort of soot covered and gothic and um i think you know reading books like high rise and crash like at quite a tender age, maybe fourteen and fifteen, really was a was was a was a very influ- influential moment, creatively, regardless of whether I was going to be a photographer. Right. Even though I did know I was going to be a photographer right from an early age, um, and then you know listening to you know like American music from the fifties. <laughs> like, I suppose Miles and stuff like that. Yeah, um, it was uh, they were they were as influential on my pictures as any other photography that I've ever seen. So when you ask me what is the what is the feeling or the mood I'm after, I suppose like psychologically that's where I'm at. Mm. Well, it sounds a bit weird because they don't really relate to East London in a but sense. I, I but I think it's, um, that, it's that thing of, of, you know, finding influences in completely other mediums, you know, that, that, that comes yeah. up a lot with creative people. I, I, I think I was listening to this on a podcast recently about you know how if you feel la- lacking in inspiration or whatever then you know go go go, go to an art you know go and look at some paintings or yeah, or listen to miles davis or whatever yeah i think that's a great trick you know it's it's it really works and i think a lot of people don't know that trick you yeah know? i've never looked at other photographs to to try right. to spur me into action right. yeah because i know that they're unattainable in a way that i'll never sort of do anything as good as them so yeah i, I, I won't look because it'll freak me out yeah um, <laughs> so it's always I mean, in in the eighties. Like Hackney was just sort of like awash with Jamaican music. It was everywhere. Every car that went past, you know, had like had dancehall kind of like blaring out the speakers. And as the car passed, you know, you heard it. You heard this sound building up, and then it sort of had this crescendo as it passed you, and then it faded away. Mm. 
um, that is my that is my memory of of Dalston in the 1980s of that feeling in the summer of hearing you know um, like the latest Sugar Minot mm. or something just out of a car window and rushing to a shop and going have you got a song that goes <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. looking at you going yeah. Another tragic white boy. Right. You know, but um But that's how you found stuff in those days. There was no yeah, Spotify. It, you know. it was it but it was also the feeling that I wanted to sort of put into the pictures. I never did. It was always a failure. Mm. But it was always the what I wanted the pictures to sort of have, you know, just like sound good rather than look good. Mm. They sort of had to be like a they had to sort of summon up a piece of music. Right, right. Um, and I think that there's still, yeah, because it was a difficult question you asked me, like, what is the sort of p- particular feeling I'm after? And I'm trying desperately to sort of, you know, to answer the question yeah, as almost, honestly as yeah, I can. Yeah, and I, but almost I asked that question in, in the knowledge that, that, you know, it's kind of pretty much impossible to articulate, or at least it seemed very likely that it'd be impossible to articulate. Yeah. But you, you've also done... Again, for Hoxton Mini Press, so you've got a very, very productive relationship with Hockney, with Hockney, Hockney <laughs> with Mini Hockney Press, Mini yeah. Press, with uh, Hoxton Mini Press, who published your your Corners book, which we which we've already talked about, and published a couple of other books that you've done as well. And one, one you one you edited a book of someone else's work. So this is again your sort of your kind of skills as an archivist, really. Yeah, uh, this was time travel again. What, um, what happened with that one? The East End in Colour. Uh, Tower Hamlet's archive said we've got this box of uh, slides Kodachrome slides on a shelf that have been sat there for and you had a relationship with them why because you because they know you from being in that yeah I'd done a commission manner. with them the year before right um, about E14 um, and that was uh, that was looking at a different another another com- different photographer someone who worked in the early part of the 20th century uh, uh, I was making pictures in response to but a couple of months after that, they called up and said, they, you know, they had this uh, cardboard box full of slides and did I want to come in and look at them? Because mm. they didn't have a way of, they didn't have a projector or a, a, a you know, a, a loop or any way of looking at them. They were holding them up to the window and, mm. you know. A medium format? No, 35 mil. Right, so hard to see anything. Hard to see anything. Um so I just, yeah, got myself a chair and a table in this box and started trawling through them. And the first couple of hundred were just like, you know, pictures of bollards and stuff. <laughs> well, you know, they weren't that good. I thought I was a train spotter. And then I came across this other box, which had David Granite written on the side and started looking at through them. And I just, I, I, you know, I fell off my chair, as they say. It was just like uh, Eureka because mm. I thought, I've been waiting all my life to see these streets shot in this era, i.e. 1960 to 1980, in, like, pin-sharp colour, you know, no irony, no clever clogs, but just, like, what did the place look like, you know? Yeah. Put the, he, he put the things he was interested in in the middle of the viewfinder and pressed the button. Yeah. But he did it really well. Right, right. Decent camera, Kodachrome 25, beautifully lit, it was just like... So you really felt like you'd found treasure almost? I, I totally did. I, I had a moment where I thought, this is absolute treasure. And, yeah. But I just, you know, I sort of, you know, I went through the rest of them and thought, well, there's 2,000 pictures here. This is, this is special, you know. And did and you... F- and when I told them, they went, oh, you know. And they just looked ordinary 
you know. Yeah. I said to the untutored eye, they were not. Yeah. And he and he, did you did you then go and find out about who he was? Yeah, but I couldn't find out who he was because there was hardly anything about him. But mm. um, I, yeah, I became obsessed with him for about a year, I guess. Was he an amateur? He was an amateur. Yeah. In the best sense. The only thing I really found out about his family was online that his brother died in a U-boat attack in 1941 on his way emigrating to America and he was kind of left on his own. Right. Um, you know, the son of a, you know, an Ashkenazi Jewish mother and an Irish father living in the East End. And it suddenly made sense what he was doing because he, he, he was photographing his world just before it disappeared. Right. So it was like with his dying breath, he, he committed it all to, to, to film, knowing, and then put it in a box and gave it to the archive and then promptly died. Wow. So he, I think he knew exactly what was going on. That he, he said, so, this, this has got to go, this has got to be recorded. Not on film or not on sound or, you know, there's loads of other records of the, of the East End, you know, uh, but this will be um, a sort of... Um, a, you know, a very sort of scatological record of what the place looked like, you know, in pin-sharp colour. Mm. And I I thought no collection like that existed. You know, there's been suggestions of it, you know, like, you see uh, Bailey's pictures of where he grew up in mm. Plasto, and, you know, but they're, they're just fleeting glimpses, really, of something that you knew was there, but, you know, you just never really had the evidence. Yeah, this was really comprehensive, properly, like you say, yeah. done. And, and like... Street by street, you know, like, absolutely just... Some, mm. something that you could only sort of imagine so I just thought well if I was you know 50 years older this is what I would have done mm. so I kind of saw it as a he was like an extension of you know he, he, you. He, well he was like a he a was precursor. on the same mission yeah know? yeah he was like you know but you're a time traveller a brother yeah and perhaps unsurprisingly that book has been incredibly popular yeah yeah, for whatever well. reason, I guess people are fascinated by perhaps that. Well, Hoxton Mini Press are good at selling books. Hoxton Press, yeah. Press are good at selling books. We know that. Yeah. And that's, um, you know, marketing them. And they have a very solid kind of un- understanding of what their mission is and, you know, what they're uh, up Yeah, to. and I didn't need to persuade. I mean, the minute they saw them, they knew exactly what I was on about. This was Martin. Yeah. yeah. Martin and Anne. They, Anna. Uh, yeah. They, you know, I, I like to show them both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's amazing, and and, and they and got it right away. Yeah. And and your your collective instinct was bang on because, as as I say, the, the book's done brilliantly. And we're just on doing part two now. Another another. Oh, you are another collection. A different photographer who's fantastic work has come to light who started work in 1980 so it picks off no way exactly where granning finished that's almost too perfect i know it's 1980 to 2000 so it's the 20 years afterwards but the same the same territory but it's undergo it's starting to undergo the 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 transformation into you know what what do you think is it nostalgia that people uh you know have for that time that fascinates people is it just the kind of universal human interest to to, to look back at how things were i don't yeah who was it was it abby hoffman said nostalgia was a mild form of depression (laughs) and you know i think he's right that really that really resonates with me yeah well it makes me depressed i fucking can't stand nostalgia i've got a real aversion to it that's just me i've i'm a bit 
strange like that. Well, if you look it up, I think, um, you know, from the Greek, you know, it, it means our collective, our, our pain, you know. It's right. like, a, it's, a, it's a collective pain. See, I didn't know that. Um, and that's... It's all there on Wikipedia, you just look it up. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> But I did. I didn't know what the the the. Well, it sounds like an illness, doesn't it? Must it sounds like a condition, which yeah. it is really. But, yeah, um, it does. Like neuralgia. <laughs> yeah. Oh, don't talk to me about neuralgia. <laughs> um, but that's no. That that's that's really resonant. I, I yeah. think if you're just tapping into nostalgia, then it's boring, and it's you know, it's like it's uh, it's it's yeah, tweaking all the wrong kind of buttons. Mm. I think what in this case, especially with the granics, is that it's a recognition that. The language of colour photography, which is very distinct from black and white in terms of nostalgia, if you like. Um, there, you know, since maybe the, the mid-80s, when people like Paul Graham started using colour photography in a bit more of a serious way, let's say, or, you know, J- uh, J- the Joels mm. and Eggleston and Stephen Shaw were recognising that there was a kind of a whole new language about photography, which was exclusive to working in color which um has a lot to do with memory because we you know that idea that you kind of tend to remember the the long hot summers rather than the the gray winters you know it's there's a connection with memory and color and certain kinds of color like the warm tones of kodachrome might trigger different things than you know exochrome or <laughs> kodachrome or agfa yeah they've all got they all have a very distinct and different effect on you. Um, I'm very aware of it because it's what I do, you know. It's like I spend my whole life um, nuancing those those colours in very sort of mundane and familiar situations out on the streets of London, you know. I'm not, not, a, not really anything more interesting than anywhere else on the surface. Yeah. But um, there's a there's a sort of historical vapour that you can release by using certain sort of tones and and mediums that, that kind of tend to bring it out. I'm really interested in that. I can't really define what it is or I don't know what's going on. I know it isn't just nostalgia, but, you know, photography is now, what, 190 years old or 180 years old. It's still young, you know, as a, as a thing. You yeah. Know, it's, it's very much in its infancy. Yeah. We're just coming to understand what it is. I tend to think might, it might not end up being an art form. It might be something else. It might be something far more deep and profound, like psychologically, but I don't know what that is. <laughs> well, certainly... But certainly I, I know yeah. photographers, you know, like, that I think they're aware of that when they're working and making things, but there just isn't the language to really describe what it is they're doing. And, you know, I'm, I just know that I'm one of hundreds of people who are really into you know like the people you know and you've talked to hmm. well the uh, great thing about it is such a broad church i mean there's so many different ways of, of looking at it and yeah. it, what's the point of being kind of you know narrow in one sort of i mean it's fine to to ha- you know have your your own distinct passions for you know one thing and not another but you've got to enjoy the fact that you know, there's so many different ways of looking at the thing. You know, yeah. you could just see yourself as a, as you say, a documentarian, have no pretension towards being considered an artist whatsoever. Then there's the the hardcore, who are really just about news and, yeah. oh, you know, and and uh, this, I'm kind of stating the bleeding obvious, really. Sorry, listeners. Um, <laughs> it's my fault. No, it's not yeah. at all. But um, 
I wanted to. Well, the other thing you it's did. It's a good name for a book, that state in the bleeding, obvious, isn't it? Yeah. Someone's got to do it. Good, yeah. Especially with photography, that'd be great. That would be a great. Yeah. yeah. Someone should do it. Now, who would do that? A book, a, a photo book called State in the Bleeding Office. We should come up with some suggestions of which photographer that would likely yeah. to be come from. Maybe Martin Parr. Who? Martin Parr, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know you're joking. <laughs> um, so. Yeah, well, you also did an, uh, you know, speaking of nostalgia, you did a book, a book, um, another book with Hoxton Mini Press about, or featuring drivers during the 80s, yeah. which was um, in, in a very kind of characteristic Hoxton Mini Press way, was called Drivers in the 80s. Yeah. I wanted to call it something else, but they yeah, of course, it. yeah, no, because it, ha- it has to say what it does, what it say on the tin, as, yeah. as, as one, as we, as we say horribly, because it's a, one of those annoying things that's been appropriated from an advert um but it does what it says it says on the tin so but you were that was a kind of accidental project wasn't it um, and yeah and very much martin and Anne um seeing it before i did really i think i showed them one or two pictures from that series and they were all shot on the same day yeah exactly you weren't yeah. intending to do those images is what i yeah it was mean. uh it was one of you know the um tory government sell-offs the rolls-royce sell-off and i just thought uh, you know something kind of led me to think I'll, I'll walk down to bishopsgate where they were doing the share sell-off and see what's going on like you said earlier i'm not journalistic in that sense but you know i just thought it might be the sort of backdrop or the context to make make some images but the the roads were so gridlocked i walked I mean, I was going to walk anyway, but I just came out of Mayor Street and started walking towards um, town, you know. And uh, it's weird, like, it's a traffic jam all the way. Uh, so I just started photographing people in who were sort of, like, going bonkers, stuck in traffic, you know. Like, just, you know, you're missing deadlines, you're stuck in traffic, you've got to be somewhere, you've got a package to deliver, you know. Mm. You've got to go and fix someone's phone. Yeah, it's horribly frustrating. Um, and you just... Uh, so I just heard, they were, you know, like sort of, they were captives, basically. I could go right up to them mm. and just photograph them very, and it just became a series of portraits. And I didn't really think much of it, but I showed I showed two or three of them to Martin and Anne, and they go, have you got any more of these? I said, yeah, but they're, you know, they're not that good. I said, well, we want to see them. <laughs> we'll so be I, the judge I, of that. Yeah. So I got, I got the whole lot out, and it was like, you know, sort of ten rolls of film. Um and I just showed them all of them, and they go, yeah, we'll do a book of that. So <laughs> I, it never occurred to me it would make a book, but they turned it into one. They just found the perfect sort of context. and Yeah, because, again, I think, yeah. you know, the, these things take on... And it was 30 years extra, later, you know. Well, that's what I mean, you know. Yeah. If you print, if you publish those, you know, at the time kind of thing, yeah. people would be like, whoa. You know. And it was the first colour shots I'd done. It was oh, really? The, it was the first ten rolls I'd ever put through the camera. Wow. Yeah. Um, I decided that I was going to try shooting colour. So it goes to show that stuff can be, can be, have a life of its own, you know, yeah. many years later. Which because is why collaborating that. with publishers is so great, yeah. because they, you know, um, you you mentioned the book The Longest Way Round, which I didn't do with Hogs, and I did with Overlaps. Mm. Um, and uh, Overlaps is a one-person operation with Tiffany Jones yeah. out there in Nashville. Who, is she in like, Nashville? She's in Nashville, yeah. Her name came up recently and I, I yeah. did look her up and then I realised there was this connection. Well, um, let's talk about this book. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, I'd been... Um, Tiffany used to um, edit Flip magazine in London um, and that's uh, where I first met her. She ran... In fact, she was the first person to ever run the corners as a as a printed thing in a, in a magazine. And we were just, you know, talking over a period of years about... Um, 
books and what we'd like to do and I occasionally used to run ideas by her and she was like oh maybe and then then I said look I got this when my when my mother died she left me this suitcase full of images which uh, I'm not sure what they are they're full of people I don't really know and what was, what's going on in them and I know I know that they had traumatic war experiences and but they never really talked about it but this suitcase has just basically been left to me because I was the photographer in the family or one of them and then she yeah she goes now that now you're talking mm. <laughs> that sounds good mm. Um, so so, so uh, I thought, well, I don't want to do a family album. I want to I want to kind of uh, put those pictures together with my story a bit because you know it shows that there's a link. Oh, not only with photography, but with the geographical history. The East End. Both my parents were from East End families, but they didn't want to talk about it, and I didn't know why. And it was because just of you know like turned out to be sort of 200 years of you know terror abuse alcohol and poverty really which genetically even though that they didn't really have a first-hand connection with that it was kind of in the dna that they wanted to not really have anything to do with that world but they even though they hadn't suffered they hadn't suffered personally but they they did suffer personally in the second world war both of them i mean um my dad was in in a polish prisoner of war camp for four years and ended up going on the death march yeah and had you known that already no i mean i I knew i knew that he'd been a prisoner of war and he'd made light of it but right so you'd known some of it uh only i'd only known the bare bones and and my mum had you know she'd had three shotgun weddings with and by the time she was 27 with three different guys you know um, and produ- <laughs> produced a, a son on each occasion. Right. So and this, this was this, post-war. So this bloke used to come and visit us, you know, in the summer when I was a kid. She sort of, uh, she took me aside and said, oh, you know, that's that's your brother. I said, what, you mean Steve, the guy who <laughs> who comes and sees us, like, a couple of times a year? She goes, yeah. <laughs> I goes, well, you know, what's what's the deal? What, what, what's going on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she couldn't. Really, she never really sort of said much. So there about was it. three. Three. It of was you. too traumatic. But as she said to me once, you know, we thought we were going to die to, die tomorrow, so we just kind of went at it. Yeah. Um, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? Jesus. Yeah. You know, and that's the thing you have to remember, isn't it? And also, uh, my I I discovered that the friend that my dad had in Munich, who we used to go and visit every year, um, was the guy who was been one of his guards in the prison camp and who been responsible for taking the propaganda pictures of the British prisoners um, to, uh, you know, send to the Red Cross to say, look, we're looking after them. They, you know, it's a fun camp, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Here they are with their Red Cross, you know, the, the plum duff that they, they got sent, you know. I mean, it's 30 miles away from Auschwitz, you know, but like the, you know, the, the British... You know, he was a squaddy in the in the London regiment. You know, in the artillery, mm. were being relatively well taken care of. You know, even though he was like down to seven stone or something. Anyway, the guy who was taking the pictures turned out his name was Conrad Conrad Barnack. He was the son of Oscar Barnack, wow, who invented the Leica. And so this place, this flat we were going to visit to in in Munich every year was covered in 
brass eyes, Cartier Bressons, and you know Robert Kappa pictures all around the all around the room. But he'd inherited from his father. Well, he swapped in return for giving them a new camera because oh, wow. he he had the the Leica dealership in in Munich. Amazing. And he was your dad's guard. Yeah, my dad. POW my camp. dad fixed his watch, and Conrad taught him how to speak German in return. Wow. Amazing. And he, he, he got done for fraternising with the British being too friendly. He got sent out to the Russian front. He was about 13 years older than my dad. And my dad used to fix... He had this amazing eyesight. He could fix watches. So they became friends. So, and after so, the war, wow. he stayed friends with him. He'd amazing. go and visit him every year. I, and I, I knew this guy, but I didn't know that he was the son of Oscar... I didn't even know who Oscar Barnack was. No, of course. That's um, incredible. So there was this crazy connection with, you know, the very sort of, like, foundation of 35mm reportage photography. And I'd seen these prints on the wall... Um, in frames, thinking, well, you don't have photographs in frames on a wall, you have paintings. You know? Right, right. So I must have planted a seed somewhere in my mind that photography was this kind of, like, you know, this this higher sort of level of worship, you know, you mm. could put them in frames. I Amazing. think that was probably the moment I made my mind up that I was going to be a photographer, because yeah. it just seemed normal, you know, like this guy was the was the photographer in the camp, you know. Um, a bit, I think he was a bit of a conchie, didn't want to get involved in the war machine, so they gave him a cushy job. Um, and he was sufficiently nice towards the, your dad and his, his other fellow prisoners that... Yeah, I guess to know. get the best out of him, he had to be nice to him, you know, yeah. to get him to smile, like make him look like they were having a good time, mm-hmm. you know, because it was just total proper... So I'd found these pictures, and they all had the stalag stamp on the back in this box, you know, and I was thinking, so... How did this picture come to be in my father's possession with with the Stalag stamp on the back and his POW number? Must have been with him the whole time. Yeah. So basically, these photographs were in a collection of pictures that had survived the whole war from him. And on the other hand, my my mother and they, my mum and dad had known each other as kids, had um, married an American GI and had a child and also had married another guy an, a, an airman in the air force and he was killed in training so she had two kids at a very tender age by two different guys and the war wasn't even over right um and she met your dad afterwards well they knew each other because they, they lived on adjacent streets but they got together afterwards yeah, yeah. but the weird thing was there was in my dad's collection of pictures were pictures of her in a bikini taken by one of the husbands but it had the stalag no stamp way. on the back so she was sending pictures of her with a bikini on to my dad in a prison camp while she was married to the other guys <laughs> so <laughs> this know, was a outrageous behavior yeah but anyway this i just thought well this is uh i i can't tell their story they're not around but it was uh, tiffany saw the potential in these mm. and she was responsible for the editing and the sequencing of these documents but did you then add your own images to yeah. the project and and how did you kind of go about deciding what you needed to to, to shoot to sort of augment the, the stuff that you got from your d- dad's or your parents collection in an effort to sort of un- try and understand their war i sort of undertook a series of journeys that led me to the remains of the prison camp in poland in in lambsdorff as it was called um, and photographed basically this empty field. Um, and 
the route that he took on the death march coming back when the Russians were coming from the Eastern Front in January 45. They cleared the camps. Uh, so he marched 600 miles in the snow in January in northern Poland, you know, with them um, in bare feet. Jeez. So half of them died. Yeah, you I can know, imagine. They were completely, completely buggered. Uh, and it, it went a long way to explaining why my dad was like he was, you know. And why my mum was like she was too, you know, about uh, how they were lucky to get through it, basically. Mm. And why they, you know, <laughs> they went on the Raz for 30 years after the war. So my my whole childhood was kind of them partying. Right. And all their mates were doing the same thing, you know. It was like... It was, it was 30 like a celebration. Being in the middle of, you know, I was only knee high to all these people sort of dancing, smoking and drinking and carrying on. How did that impact you, your personality then? Was it, did it, does oh, that I mean, I, yeah, I, make you a sort of happy-go-lucky kind of... <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> Made me a sort of cynical, like, uh, so alcohol the opposite loathing. Effect. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I'm still dealing with it. Um, you know, it's... I'm neurotic, Ben, you know, but I'm I'm oh, trying my you best. You and me both. Yeah. So, um... But, uh, you know, I thought it was, um... It, it wasn't so much I wanted to make just a family album. Uh, the, the pictures are amazing. The documents are wonderful. My dad was quite a good photographer. My mum was quite a good model in some cases. Mm. Um, but I thought this is the universal tale of that generation, you know, that born in the 20s who had no other choice but to be involved in this cataclysmic world war from the the ages that were you know their 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 youth was snatched away from them yeah and they were you know old jaded and seen death and destruction by the time they were 25 they'd seen half their friends diced up into little chunks and put into bags mm. but they still managed to be good parents and know how to have a good time and i was thinking is that possible in the in 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 this day and age for people still to be that resilient and how was i ever you know negative about them you know if they were still around now i just uh, i'd have a very different sort yeah. of attitude towards but them I'd, I'd be more understanding exactly yeah but it's very hard to be understanding when you're young because you yeah. know you kind of all, all you really know is your own experience and yeah. if you're you know if you're if, if the parenting has not met your requirements then you're going to be like well you know you're not doing your job but then you as you get older you kind of at least get a context for why that might be well whatever you know your childhood always you you think it's normal whatever you're going through you think it's the default position you don't kind of quite you, you don't think oh it could be better than this or it could no. be worse you just yeah. think this is how it is right um but i only you know un, un, when i when i went through the pictures and put them into a sequence i suddenly I was spending time with them as young people, as kids, basically, you know, mm. teenagers and kids in their early 20s. And uh, Yeah, it's amazing. What a great I'd, document. I'd never... I talk, Well, photography has, a, has an ability to do this. It's like a time travel in a sense that if you have a collection which is kind of... Even if it's incoherent, even if it's only suggesting at things, that you can go back and, uh, you know, be with people as they were... I don't know, 50, 60 years ago, and it gives you an, an insight through their body language, through their facial expressions into what was going through their minds, what they were dealing with, and why they passed on, you know, genetically the, 
you know the the addictions and stuff that you end up picking up yourself and it's you just think it's no surprise that i'm addicted to tobacco or alcohol or whatever it is it's Mm. like i I mean my mum was drunk when i was born but it was like a it was like a party joke can you imagine that now you know she she went into labor while she was at a party and the guy who delivered me was a doctor he was pissed at the same party (laughs) yeah so those were the times you know yeah um and it was all kind of brushed off as a as one big laugh because they survived. Yeah, like, they yeah, well, they got through it. It's all gravy. We're we're here. Yeah, it's all gravy. So shut shut up and get on with it. You know. Yeah, and I suppose you know. I yeah. suppose yeah. What well, I mean, I'm, I'm sure spending four years in POW camp was was fucking no picnic, as you say. And, yeah. and I'm sure that you know they were probably treated appallingly, but but that saved a lot of you. Li- you know, saved a lot of lives because at least you're, if you're gonna, you know, you've got less chance of dying than you have if you're out there. Um, on the front line or, or you know, in active service. I think it's the reason I'm a photographer. I'm still dealing with, with some kind of post-war... Trauma. When I wasn't born until 13 years after the war ended. Right. But I'm, I'm dealing with it still, not only with family pictures, but walking around the East End, knowing where my parents lived, knowing where their friends lived, knowing what kind of traumas the area went through why that building is there, why it looks like the way it does. Yeah, it's almost like your genes are draw, draw you back to these things to try and yeah. kind of make sense of I it. I mean, I think, you know, they have proved that you can inherit trauma. They, tra- you know, on a, on a load of white mice, I think they tried it on because they, there were suspicions that children of those people who'd been involved in the Holocaust, who were yeah, you know, yeah, the yeah. Auschwitz survivors, were undergoing very specific psychological problems yeah. that they couldn't explain out scientifically any other way. Yeah, I've heard about that. So that kind of piqued my interest a bit, going, okay, well, yeah, so you can inherit trauma. Like, well, you, you know, we, we know that you can inherit trauma sort of psychologically, in a sense, by a continuation of, a, of abuse or bad habits. But can it actually be in, embedded in the DNA, you know? And yeah. I think now that there is pretty sort of compelling evidence that it can be. Incredible, isn't it? And... Uh, I think maybe the photography is just part of that illness. You know, it's part of the addiction and part of that, what, what I'm going... You know, why I've never been able to have a proper job. Yeah. Or, you know, what am I doing? You know, what... It, it's, it's absurd, like, wandering around with a camera, taking photographs in order to sort of find out who you are. I don't know. Well... I don't want to put it down. Well, yeah, it's all got a bit depressing, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, sorry. No, not your fault. I'm yeah. going the same way. But, I mean, I, you know, yeah. I, think, it's a, I think it's a wonderful thing. Um, <laughs> no, I do. I mean, I, I, you know, I, you, you, you know you're, you're in very good company. Let's put it that way. Uh, well, um, I, I, hopefully, you know, the intention was to make it like a, 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 a universal thing. It wasn't about me or it wasn't about my family. Well, it was that it was something that it was relatable to that using historical images could spark off yeah. certain and you're not the only person who's compelled to wander around with a camera otherwise i yeah. wouldn't have anyone to talk to on this podcast for a start well i mean i'm glad you brought up the word nostalgia because it can be construed as just a sort of you know like a waste of time and sort of a, a, a miserable obsession or it can be the sort of beginnings of something quite interesting in terms of and i think it's got a but it's I think, got a relationship to photography and in a way maybe we don't understand you know yeah and i think i think the fact is that for most people it's a great joy it's just for miserable bastards like us yeah. it's sort of the kind of etymology of the word becomes extremely resonant but 
yeah, that's me. I mean, but <laughs> on a happier note, yeah. you've, you've secured yourself a, a high-powered American agent. Tell me about how that <laughs> happened. How did you know that? Oh, oh yeah, because you, yeah, I've got research. this groovy new web designer, right? Oh, yeah I, did, yeah, yeah. I did his website, everyone. You know about this. I do advertise my services yeah. on my own podcast. Go on, how did you get this agent? Hey, listeners, uh, believe me, this guy knows his onions when it comes to putting a website together. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. This message is brought that to endorsement. you by... <laughs> Yeah, that's got to be a good thing. What was the conversation like? Yeah, what was the conversation like? I think there was a review of the book in the New York Times. He saw that. So he called me up. By said, uh, Jeff Skype? Dyer, no less. Yeah, by, by Jeff Dyer, yeah, um, which was pretty positive. And so he said, I'm going to Skype you on Wednesday. And, like, and I knew who Robert was, you know, because I'd seen, I'd seen his stand at the Paris Photo Fair. and Robert, Robert Koch. Koch. Yeah. And I thought, wow, you know, like if you're going to have a... If you can have an agent or a gallery, you've got to be with the with the big boys, you know, like this this is interesting. This this is kind of photography at another level I don't understand. Anyway, so we had a Skype and he was and I've, his opening his opening line was, How comes I never heard of you? You know. Like I think it's the greatest compliment you can pay to anyone. Because I did I didn't say what I wanted to say was you haven't done your homework. But um <laughs> you know, they it's uh that is a great compliment. It is a it is a great compliment, especially to an old man like me, you know. And you know, it, it's it's. It, I suppose from his point of view, it's like you know, who, you know, how come I never heard of him? Like, if he's if he's got a got a show out, um, he's got a book review in the New York Times, mm. and he's been selling photographs since the mid seventies. So basically, since dealing photography started, you know, so he used to he used to travel around Europe and pick up vintage Julia Margaret Camerons for 50 bucks a throw, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, those are the glory years, you know. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, he's taking a risk. Um, and uh, we're having a show in January in uh, in San Fran. But it's business, you know. It's hmm. And I, I kind of like that. It's very, very unsentimental. It's very practical, you know. Like, we're, we're, we want them this big, you know, we want them... You know, make them bright, uh, make them this size, and that's it. That's that's all you. That's how the conversation goes. You know, there's no, yeah, there's no kind of uh, you know arse licking or um, nostalgia or anything. It's just like you know, I sell photographs, you make them, <laughs> right? Uh, and I'm, Which is kind I'm of what all you right want, with that. that. That's what yeah. you want from that relationship because yeah. you, you know, the other relationships can bring the other stuff, but yeah. Well, and awesome. it's different from having, I mean, you know, I'm not, I've never really been one for exhibitions. You know, I like looking at photographs in books. Yeah. Though having said that, I saw uh, Tish Murphy's pictures at the Photographer's Gallery a couple of months ago. Um, there's someone who might have slipped under the radar for a lot of listeners, but she was working in the Northeast in the 70s. Hmm. And the work's only really sort of come to light now. Um, yeah. The, these were like 10-8 prints from 35 mil negs black and white and it was just oh they were just they're just amazing wow yeah yeah i've become aware of her fairly recently and some yeah. of my uh listeners in the north of england are making me more aware of people from that you know neck of the woods I yeah think. that's great yeah tish because well, yeah, uh, yeah. i know her her daughter's She's passed, still around yeah. yeah what else that's it yeah why not Let's uh, eat those croissants. <laughs> Thank you so much, Chris. It's been fantastic. I could, I could literally, no, really, I could talk for, for, for hours, but um, it's been fascinating. Thank you so much for making the time to chat. Oh, well, you know, thanks for asking. It's been fun. Thank you.